the, the song that we sing and the prayer that we come together around today is that most of us have had some experience with God to some extent. Um, maybe yours is short. Maybe yours has been through your entire life. I don't know. But the idea is that we would, in increasing measure, become more and more faithful to God and experience that faith in a way that causes us to trust him even deeper. Have you experienced that? Yeah? And so as we approach the scripture today, we're going to look at that same thing, that this isn't just new in our generation, that this isn't just new for us, but what I want us to do right now is just to stop and recall moments in our lives wherein God has been faithful. Let's stop real quick and just think about that. In your own life, in your own time, where are milestones or moments where God has said and shown and proven himself to be faithful in your life? And just take a quick moment to reflect on that. And I want to pray with that fresh in our hearts and our minds, God, just as Courtney prayed and just as Sarah sang, God, oh, for grace to trust you more. Oh, for grace to trust you more. Thank you for the ability to trust. Oh, for grace to trust you even more, Lord. So we come to you in the house of God to worship in community. We thank you for those who are in person. We thank you for those who are hearing us online. And there may be people we've never met who are catching us online, even in this moment that, that we have never seen. God, would you use what we do this morning? Would you use the praises of our heart? Would you use uh, the word that is about to be spoken to touch hearts and lives so that more milestones would be created and people would know the faithfulness of you and spur us on to even deeper depths of faithfulness? And together we agree on this, all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Well, welcome everyone. We're so glad that you're here. We're glad if you're catching us online, um, make sure you just say hello, drop it in the chat just so we can see who's out there. Um, man, it is a, uh, uh, it's, it, I, I know that we've got our first snow. <laughs> I'm a, I don't know um, if that hindered anyone, if that got them out of bed this morning, um, depending on how excited you are. I know we've been talking about and hoping for some moments to sled uh, during this winter before it all ended. Um, so hopefully we get that opportunity today. Um, here, we've been going through a series uh, this entire uh, beginning of this year that we're calling New. And if you remember, what we're doing is we're talking about becoming new. What we've seen inside of our church is that we have walked through a myriad of changes over the last couple of years and even the last few months in including but not exclusive to the COVID season that we're walking through. And the idea is that as we've seen these changes, we're comparing that shift and that, and that idea to a journey. Just like God's people went through multiple journeys who have moved from one destination to another, we too are on a journey. And so we've depicted that as point A. Now, you don't need to read this. This was just kind of what was written on that first sermon. What I want you to see this, though, is point A and point B, once again, are back up on the stage. And so what I want you to see is that this journey, this destination, has a beginning, it has an ending, and then it has a whole lot of in-between, right? often more than we're re really ready to engage in. But the beauty of that is as, as we have seen God's people leave Egypt, we cannot stay here anymore, and then move towards a destination. And the vision that God gave Moses was Exodus 3.8. It says this, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and with honey. And so we have this that we can't stay here, but we have this over here that's going. There's a description that sounds good, but they haven't actually seen it quite yet. And what ends up happening is that in the middle of that, it's often more difficult, less predictable than we typically think of, right? But in this in-between, 
It's a training ground. On the in-between space between where we were and where we are, it's a place of testing. It's where Jesus was tested inside of the desert as a memory of Egypt gives us this push factor of we didn't like what that was. We also have this other pull factor on the other side of we have this vision in front of us. So there's both this push and pull idea that is hopefully propelling us and continuing to keep us motivated to move forward. And so we as a church are wanting to become something. We stepped out of the, we want to, to step into the reality of a new thing depicted in, Gen, sorry, in Revelation 7, 9. It says this, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And so God gives us a glimpse of what the future kingdom is going to look like. The new heavens and new earth will have multiple cultures, multiple languages, multiple nations represented that are lifting up praises to God. And they're all doing it in this unified thing before the lamb who is slain, before the one who is clothed in white, before Jesus who is the Christ. And so here's our vision statement in our church that has been our vision statement for a while. To invite all people regardless of age, ethnicity, and background to be formed into the image of Jesus in order that we might love our neighbors in Indianapolis and around the world. And so my identification of our point B is revelations, is the new kingdom, the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth, and it's depicted right inside of our vision statement. And we know that we're not going to probably ever arrive at that in some sort of snap moment or an overnight decision. We want to be, we need to be good stewards of the vision that God has given us. And in the journey of God's people today, as we read the scriptures, we find them in the middle of their desert. They're actually near the prize, but they do something that squanders the opportunity that is right in front of them. Have you ever squandered an opportunity? Have you ever had an opportunity? Maybe it was a financial option. Maybe it was a a thing that you were trying to figure out, a decision that you were making. Maybe it was a a relationship, somebody, uh, the one who always got away, perhaps. Someone who you wanted to to ask out and you just didn't have, uh, for whatever reason, the motivation or you, you let fear take over and you let that opportunity squander and you regretted it. Well, the good thing is we have God's grace when we squander things, right? But I think all of us have felt that regret. We got to the other side. We're like, man, that was an opportunity. I had it. It was right in front of me. And I missed it. So we typically, what we do is we have this logical process. We measure opportunities often by a risk and reward paradigm. We make logical conclusions. Opportunities are built according to uh, uh, a different type of way in the kingdom of heaven, but what we have often in front of us is this risk and reward situation. And so we'll put it on an X, Y axis, we'll, we'll make charts and, and create diagrams, and there's this, uh, the, you know, the, the metrics of all of the different opportunities that we have versus the risk, and you have this curve, and you can say, well, this is a good opportunity, this is a bad opportunity, this one is worth the risk, even though it's high risk, it's actually such a high opportunity and reward that I'm going to go ahead and take it. And so we have this way of measuring x-axis against y-axis to decide logically, am I going to move forward on this opportunity? And so this opportunity is presented in the book of Numbers 13 to God's people. And I think they kind of use the same system. We'll see it come out of the text, but what I want you to see is that it doesn't always operate off of an x and y-axis. 
in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't always operate off of a risk and reward system. So open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13, we got a significant chunk of scripture, but it's narrative, it's a story, so I think just follow along and I'll kind of um, point out little things as we move forward. So Numbers chapter 13, it says, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran, All of them were leaders of the Israelites, and these are their names. And it goes on to tell you all of their names. So just in those first three verses, God gives them an expedition that they're supposed to go on. He chooses, tells them to choose representatives from each of the 12 tribes, and then he reminds them of something, of a promise that he made to them. He says it right there in the beginning I am giving to the, uh, sorry, to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. And he reminds them of that. Verses 4 through 16 record the names. I'm going to jump that part, pick back up in verse 17. Go ahead and jump there with me. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they walled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile? Is it poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do the best, do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land, for it was the season of the first ripe grapes. And so depending on your translation, we have 12 spies or scouts. They are chosen to represent Israel and all of the different uh, uh, sections of the way in which they were divided, and they are given details on which to explore this land. And so I want to point out a few things that they are given. They were given a promise, they are now given an itinerary, and they are given an idea of what they're supposed to pay attention to. So we have a promise, we have an itinerary, we have the people, and we have a land. When you read between the lines, you can see them doing the math in their head, right? There's a risk and reward assessment taking place inside of these descriptions, right? As he asks and details out, what's the, what's the soil like? What, what about this thing? What about that? And so let's see what happens next in verse 21. It says this. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob, Rehob toward Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahimin, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Okay, so did we follow the itinerary? They asked that question. Okay, check. Did they take a look at the people? Well, they're going to get there. Now, what about the quality of the land? All of these things are questions that they're supposed to explore. Verse 23 goes on, it says this, When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Now listen to this, two of them, that's two grown, able-bodied men, carried on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. And I love it, they're like, well, grab some pomegranates and figs while you're out there, right? Giant grapes. That place was then called, it says this in verse 24, that place was called the Valley of Eshkol, meaning cluster, because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. So the fruit of the land, I mean, double check, 
Like we, we, it's so good they named this place Giant Fruit Cluster Place. <laughs> That's how they refer to this place on the other side of it. The reward seems to be pretty good, right? Well, let's listen to the full report on the exploration, verse 25. It says, at the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. And I, I don't know why, but that caught me as interesting. I, I always thought of it as just a few days, a couple of days that they went in. But they were, they were surveying the land for 40 days. Then verse 26, they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. And they pull out giant clusters of grapes. Verse 28, but, here's the twist. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak a knock there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. There's a few things I want to point out based on the criteria set out before us. Once again, the itinerary, the land, and the people here. The itinerary, it tells us this, one, one commentator mentions this, that the 10 representatives who likely have been chosen because of their credibility in the Israelite community violate their mandate by deliberately distorting the report to persuade their people not to go in the land. You ask yourself, well, how do we know it was deliberate? Well, this is, this is what we see. Moses commissioned them to go up through the Negev and into the hill country, which at that time was actually fairly sparsely populated. There were very few fortifications. And so even as the writer is writing this, the, the person who wrote the book of Numbers, he's trying to get them to see, oh, yeah, we know that area. It was actually, that, that would have been an easy, we're, we're expecting these people to come back from their report and tell us, like, it's good, take this place. It's right here, it's in front of us. But instead they come back and they include a larger geographical scope in their report to include heavily populated regions that are near the sea and along the Jordan. And so they include areas that were not necessarily even meant to be included in this report so that it sounds as though the entire land of Canaan is densely occupied and impenetrable. Now, I'll say, uh, as you look at different um, commentaries in uh, Jewish community, it's called Midrash, um, this is a long-held idea that this was their sin that they brought into the rest of the community. Others say their sin was actually that they were fearful that they might become successful in this endeavor. So they came back and told a lie on that end because they weren't sure that they could handle the responsibility. Now, there's a few different looks. I don't know if it was actually deliberate or not. But the problem still ends up in the same. They come back, they see that God has, and affirm what God has said about the land. It is very fruitful, which affirms that he has said, instead of centering this report, though, on the fruitfulness and the affirmation of God, they quickly pass over it to begin talking about how they, and, and dwell on the number, the power of the people of Canaan, how large they are, how fortified their cities are. And so no matter which way you look at this, this report definitely is biased, I guess, at some, some extent, towards the 10 and their viewpoint and what they want to do, what their plans are, what their future ideas are for the people. And so as the euphoria of this idea, we are about to get what we've wanted, 
begins to evaporate. There's an uproar, a disappointment that is inferred. And we don't know if it's shock, if it's awe. Are they disappointed? Are they upset? Are they weeping and crying because what they thought they were going to have, they now aren't going to get? And we don't know which one of those is happening. But what we do know is that it is an uproar to the extent that Caleb, one of the scouts from Judah, has to calm them down. He steps in in verse 30, says this. Then Caleb silenced the people. Caleb silenced the people before Moses We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. He doesn't say they are any less powerful, any less fortified. He doesn't try to modify the report at all. He just asserts confidence in what has been said to him. So they're worked up. Caleb silences them, the people, silences the people before telling them that they can and should go up and take the land. But how is he so sure? And then we see that the group who gave the bad report, they decide to double down in verse 31. It says, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And and then it goes on, it says, they spread, and uh, sorry, and they spread, this is important, among the Israelites, a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. And there's some debate as to what that word means. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim. That's the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. Those are giants. It's kind of this legendary group of people. We seemed like, and what does that word say? We seem like what? Grasshoppers. Insects. In our eyes, and we looked the same to them. Okay, so as this bad report begins to spread through all of the people, so does fear. So so we see this internal attack take place, right? It's not just that they're afraid of them out there, but they now are at a place that they don't even believe in their own identity. They have exchanged who God has called them for this other term, this insignificant bug, And these giants will simply squash us if we try to go into this. And so they don't even believe that they are who God tells them they are. They have lost their own identity for fear of what they have seen and observed inside of the land. Now, this is a turning point in the life of God's people, right? Things seem to have been going pretty well as they're navigating uh, out of Egypt and through the desert. God's providing. There's been some bad situations, uh, and God has given them some uh, what would be akin to um, uh, marriage vows. He has given them the Ten Commandments ups and downs, but now we're kind of on this right path then here, right when they're about to take what God has told them they can have. The people decide, I don't want it. I don't want it. But it's right there. I mean, you're at least within some sort of a walking distance, right? You sent the spies in there. It's not far. You might even be able to see it from the top of a hill. No, I, I don't want it. Sorry, God. Thank you for this. Thank you for the departure from here. Thank you for the Red Sea. And the moment that takes place in that miraculous situation, but I don't want it. And so even though everything they've wanted to do is close, they can't see their future through the fear that is in front of them. Sadly, They make a decision to rebel against God. 
refusing the promised land and even incite a mutiny against Moses. It's like all kinds of drama too. You should definitely read it on your own time. They try to appoint a new person in there that will take them where? Back to Egypt. There's nothing for you there. And so what happens is that even against their history of witnessing over and over the faithfulness of God's covenant faithful uh, relationship with them, the miraculous moves of God doing things over and over, he honors their decision and gives them exactly what they want, obliges their fear, and they don't go in. Instead of claiming, this is what I want you to catch, instead of claiming the promise by means of exploring the land and observing the people according to God's itinerary that he has told them to walk in, this group has leveraged the itinerary to discredit the land. They have leveraged their movement and the things they've observed to cultivate fear inside of the people and they in so doing invalidate the promise that God has given them. So this result is horrific because the charges against this generation is that they will be sentenced to wander around in the desert for 40 years, that they are going to die out inside of this desert in the wilderness until a new generation arises in obedience to inherit the promised land. And so multiple biblical authors uh, throughout the rest of it, even into the New Testament, will look back at this generation and use it as an example of failure that they didn't steward the opportunity in front of them well. And they say things like, don't be like that rebellious and stiff-necked generation. And so it serves as this reminder over and over for us That when God tells us to move into something, or when he gives us actual imagery of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like, that we would be faithful to it and not act like this generation. And and, and as he does so, he honors their choice, lets them waste, and he will too today honor our choice of rebellion and allow us to be useless in our time. We could waste our lives. God will allow that to happen. We can allow fear to direct our lives. We can stack up the risk and reward on one side, and God will then move us into something that says, fine, if you don't want it, then I'm not going to make you do it. I'll wait for the next generation who is ready. And if they don't do it, I'm going to wait for the next generation who is ready. And if they don't do it, I'm going to wait for the next generation to do it. But listen, don't you want to be the generation who says, no, this is us. I'm going to stand in this place and say, I am going to be the one who does this. Use us. Make us useful. Now, there's this interesting principle in the Jewish community even today, and they use this story as an example of what they call Lashon Hara or Lashon Hara, depending on the group that you deal in. Lashon Hara is akin to our word for gossip, but it's a little bit different. Lashon hara is when you speak evil of or verbally do harm to another. It could even be true, and they say you shouldn't do it. Even if what you say is true, you should not say it. It could even be uh, that you say something knowing that the other person won't like it. Like, you know this person doesn't like this other person, and so you say in front of them a compliment. This person over here is awesome because you know that that will cause them or could possibly cause them to be like, well, I don't like that one. That's Lashon hara. You've committed Lashon hara. And what happens is that before this, if you read chapter 13, 
the, 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 the sister and brother of Moses, Aaron and Miriam, publicly disgrace Moses. They come before him. They commit Lashon Hara against Moses. And what's happening here is they're saying, we learned a lesson that we shouldn't do that. Miriam had to spend seven days, one, because Miriam said it, seven days, she, got to, she was given leprosy for a stint of time. She had to spend seven days getting clean from that moment. Aaron gets uh, punished because he listened to Miriam's Lashon Hara. And so what happens is you have this story right here juxtaposed with the story that we are reading today because God is saying they didn't learn their lesson. They're actually committing, and this is what the Jewish people today say, they have committed Lashon Hara against the land. They spoke evil of the gift that God gave them. And so they say, do not speak Lashon Hara against the gift that God has given, because in so doing, you have spoken Lashon Hara against God himself. Isn't that crazy? So they'll use this example over and over, as, as partly as a means of like, don't gossip in those things, but also as this lesson that even when God that has given you a promise, if you say that you're going to go and not take it, that's an evil against it. But if you speak evil of the good that God has promised, you have committed Lashon Hara against that thing and against God himself. All I mean to say is like, it was an interesting thing that I discovered. <laughs> I mean, partly, but for me, it's like, the, the level to which God protects the promises that he gives is powerful, and I should be cautious of how I deal in it. Okay, so from our human view, this is a logical process. We often assess without thinking about it, right? It's, it's, it's the, the risk and reward assessment. We do it all the time when we drive around in our car. We're constantly, you know, is, the, is there enough space between me and this car? Can I take this risk to pull out? It's in our finances. It's in entrepreneurial endeavors. It's in our relationships. I even thought back in this last week, I played Jenga and Sorry with my children, board games, and I'm thinking, is this Jenga piece worth it? Like, is it loose enough? Is it, maybe it's a little tighter, but look, if I get this one, this is going to leave them with nothing left, and I'm going to clinch this game right now, right? You're constantly using risk and reward all the time. Your financial advice to decide what kind of investments. And so we put these things on the X and Y axis chart, and you can look at this as this matrix that they've depicted but look what takes place, because if you were to actually sit in front of them and you know yourself, you know your capabilities outside of God, and you see giants standing in front of you, it's possible that you would conclude the exact same thing. It seems they are stacking their risk up against the potential rewards, and they've got this, 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 the pole of grapes right there. Explore the land of Canaan, which God is giving to the Israelites. It doesn't look good if you're standing in that fearful place. So if risk and reward are the criteria, then the risk is too high. Even if the reward is awesome, this risk is too high. And so God, so, so, so the people of God assess their decision and they say no. But the question is, is this the, the, uh, the assessment tool that God has told us to base our faith on? I mean, absolutely not. God doesn't care about the risk or the reward in this in so much as you are doing what he has told you to do. And so it looks less like risk and reward and more like trust and obedience. So, so do you trust the one who has given you the command and will you be obedient to walk through it even if you don't understand it? Because that, that 
I, I don't know about you. I, I mean, maybe I am the giant in this situation. I don't know, right? But I'm standing in this situation. I'm looking down in this hill, and I see this giant. It's not just one Goliath or two Goliaths or three Goliaths. It's a whole community of Goliaths standing in front of you. And God says, based on the faith you have, the trust you have in me, are you going to be obedient? Are you going to walk into this situation? And so the logic tends to fade, and faith rises up to dissolve fear. Faith rises up to destroy our concerns. Faith rises up. And I'm not saying we just effortlessly and thoughtlessly walk into anything. If God hasn't told you to do it, you're probably setting yourself up for failure in general. But when you have a right idea of your, I, we are the people of God, not insects, all right? Step one, get your identity straight. But then God is who God said he is, and he can do anything he wants. He has shown you a history. Will you trust it and step into it? And so today, this is how I want us to do Again, we've been doing this kind of in the dual sense of um, personally and then communally what I think we should be moving towards. And so personally, this is what I want you to do. Consider where you're at. What are reasons, maybe God has something new in front of you, and you feel like God has told you to do it, but you're not sure, or you're, or, you're, uh, or you're allowing fear to make that decision. So what I want us to do is to start thinking through what are reasons that we make decisions outside of God. You might squander an opportunity in front of you because you're afraid of some sort of opposition. You might squander an opportunity because you're afraid of some past failure, or you don't have a correct view of your identity, or you don't have a correct view of God's identity in front of us. It's possible that laziness just gets in the way. And I just don't feel like it. And so you squander an opportunity for that reason. You squander an opportunity because it doesn't directly benefit you, though it could benefit others. And so you pass on it. You might squander an opportunity because you lack vision. Maybe you even have some incompetence, and that's where God steps in and says, I can pick up the strength where you are weak. I can pick up the knowledge and wisdom where you don't have it. Familiarity with the old creates allegiance because in the end what happens with this group of people is they ask to go back to Egypt. Well, that's familiar at least. It wasn't good. It was simply familiar. And we will often go back to things that are familiar because we're afraid of what's in front of us. There's peer pressure. We have 10 against 2. Once again, a logical vote would have said, listen to the 10. And Caleb stands up and says, no, 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 we should go into this thing. Analysis paralysis, right? You start thinking something to death that you can't move forward. Maybe you lack resources. All of these are reasons why you may not step into something that God has told you to step into. So I want you to ask yourself right now, is there something that I'm walking in right now that God has said, move into it, but you have allowed any one of these things to say no? That you've allowed any one of these things to boil and bubble over with fear and not allow you to take what God has said is yours. I want to be one one thing I wanted to say, and I just thought of it, that I want to make this little quick disclaimer. Um, By this, uh, often this verse and this story has been used for colonization purposes. Uh, uh, You know, as we see people um, take things that don't belong to them and they justify it through this. That's not what I'm saying. And that's why I'm going to use this metaphorically in um, in this moment. But is there a land in which God has told you to step into? And for us as a community, there is a land depicted by revelations that we believe God has told us to step into. 
It can't even be debated. It literally is where the earth is going. We just have an opportunity to realize it here in this place. And so we believe that an opportunity to become a multi-ethnic church is a responsibility, is an opportunity that we must steward well. And that takes a bit. It's not going to be easy. We could do all of those things. We could lack vision of what that looks like to give us that pull factor. We could lack vision of what it used to look like in the separatedness where we don't get to benefit from the diversity of the beloved community. And so we have to have these push and pull factors. We could get into a situation where it doesn't benefit me directly, although it may benefit others. We could get into a situation where we see giants sitting in front of us. So there are going to be giants We've talked over and over about preferences looming as opposition against us that we're going to have to be willing to lay down. I remember when I first came out here, um, one of the elders who was uh, interviewing me said this, asked this question, because we had gone to New Orleans, we'd gone back to Phoenix, we kind of realized there's this cultural engagement, these different cultures, and at some point we did something that was taboo in the culture and had to apologize for it, right? Like you step across the line like, oh, culturally, this is, uh, I shouldn't have done that, I'm sorry. And so one of the elders asked me, what do you think um, you might culturally step on out here? in the Midwest. And I'm like, that's the crazy thing is you don't know until you've stepped on it. You don't know. And so here is where we say, like, we're going to anticipate that we're probably going to culturally step on each other's toes at a time. And so will we predetermine we will have grace in that situation? I'm going to be okay with it. And I'm going to lovingly go to that person and say, hey, okay, so in my culture, you not saying that or you saying this or you doing that is like, it's just, it's off base, man. It just doesn't work. So will we lack the grace in that moment? Will we lack the ability to, to let defensiveness go and say, I uh, thank you for your correction. I needed you to push me over. I needed you to push me aside. I needed you to, to mention that to me. Yeah. And so there's a giant of preferences that could be standing in front of us. There is a giant of finances that could stand in our way. There is a giant, and, and I'll use this, we, we, we try to at least center this and make sure that we see this, a giant of white-centered ideology. So are we willing to strike that giant down? A giant of demonic opposition, because the enemy does not want to see something like this come to fruition. Are we willing to strike that giant down? The temptation to base decisions on risk and reward assessments could cause us to question the value of the opportunity sitting right in front of us and say, that's too many giants. That's a community of too many giants. Or we could live off of a different assessment which says faith in God and obedience to what he has told us to say. We might stand against the giant of questioning our own identity. We're just a small church in Indianapolis with a small budget and small capabilities, and God's saying, no, I I do anything I want with anyone I want. It is those who are willing and able to step into that thing that I will lift up, that I will cultivate, that I will help guide. And maybe we should just stick in the desert of Paran, stop with all these crazy idealistic ideas of a promised land. We can choose all these variables. We can pass up on this opportunity and we can put it in the hands of the next generation. We could. Or we can believe in the promise and that the future kingdom of God can be realized in the midst of our congregation here and now. 
that that possibility can come to fruition with God's help. Okay, so, so as we end today, this is what I want us to do. Is God calling you into something personally that you need to overcome? Maybe you need to seek out some godly counsel, some friends so that you can discern, is this God or is this just my idea? What do I need to do next? What endeavor, what area, what thing uh, do, can I walk into openly and willingly and know that God is with me? And then as a community, can we seek to be a kind of people that is willing to be, have toes stepped on, to have grace when that happens, to be willing to be corrected when correction needs to take place, and to not assume or come to the table with an assumption that one culture is right or wrong, though we have to admit that one culture dominates often by its own default as a majority uh, standard. And so God... We are asking you, would you pray with me? God, we are asking you to allow valleys to rise and mountains to fall. God, whatever mountains have been built in our midst, would you lower them? And as Isaiah says, that in doing so, we prepare the way of the Lord. We create a path. We create a highway in the desert as valleys are raised up. And you step out, Lord, in this pathway that we have created, Lord. God, there is an opportunity in front of us that has such powerful implications. God, would you give us the fortitude of heart to look away from risk and reward assessments and look straight into the eyes of the God who has said, go and take that land. Establish my kingdom in this. Establish equity, establish justice. Let it roll like a river through this thing. And perhaps God, maybe, just maybe, you will use us to influence others. But we have to choose to be that generation right here, right now, God. I don't want common ground northeast wandering in the desert for 40 years. I don't want to hand off an assignment to the next generation that you have assigned to us because they're going to have their own things to do. And so, God, we want to see greater things done. Would a generation of mothers and fathers say no longer will Egypt be okay? We are moving towards a promised land with every tribe, tongue, and nation represented in this place, God. Yes, Lord, make us new. That's it, Father. That's the simple prayer. God, make us new. And all God's people said, amen.